Welcome to the second episode in the Goodwill Hunters Winter Series on Water for Development. I'm your host, Michael Wilson, CEO of the Australian Water Partnership. In this series, I'm joined by my co-host, the CEO of WaterAid Australia, Rosie Ween. I am joining from the lands of the Ngunnawal people in Canberra and Rosie from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne. We extend our respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and thank them for their care of our lands and waters. We extend that respect to all of our First Nation listeners. In this episode, we'll be asking, is there global leadership on water? And we're joined by Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Australia, who is the former chair and still a member of the Global Leadership Council for the Sanitation and Water for All Global Partnership. Listen to Kevin Rudd talk about the centrality of SDG 6 to all the other SDGs and challenge decision makers to take real action. Kevin also has some interesting views on the future mandate of the World Bank and finance as the engine room for development. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Water scarcity and water security challenges are growing at an unprecedented pace, affecting billions of people globally. The United Nations has said that in over 300 locations, we can expect to see conflict over water by 2025. This is exacerbated by continuing population growth and the impacts of climate change. So what happens if we do nothing? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from the Australian Water Partnership. As a Water for Development initiative supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Australian Water Partnership mobilises Australia's internationally recognised expertise to drive action towards sustainable water management in our region and beyond. We're so glad you can join us for this crucial conversation on our shared global water future this winter on Goodwill Hunters. Kevin Rudd, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be on the podcast, with the podcast and in the podcast, whatever the right preposition is. Kevin, when you became Prime Minister of Australia in 2007, you showed the greatest commitment to financing international development and fighting world poverty, probably of any Australian leader since Gough Whitlam or Malcolm Fraser. Also, while you are in office, your government was faced with managing Australia's own deepening water crisis. When you left office, you chose to remain engaged in this effort internationally, and you chose to focus on water and sanitation. Why did you choose to lend your international profile to issues of water in particular? Um, in part, as a uh, kid growing up in rural Australia, I always understood that water was important, and in our country, Australia, it's scarce. Secondly, as a student of climate change, I understood um, what um, long-term water scarcity could look like, particularly in southeastern and southwestern Australia, if you look at the uh, projections from the CSIRO, among other institutions. And thirdly, wearing a global hat, um, whatever problems um, or opportunities water scarcity presented for Australia paled into insignificance compared with those across the planet. And um, when you then, as a person who just looks at the data, 
and the number of people in the world, uh, 1.5 billion, who don't have access to uh, clean drinking water on a daily basis. The fact that you have 2 billion plus who, who do not have access to what we describe as uh, reasonable quality sanitation services. Um, it may not be the most glamorous part of the development business to, to be in, but water and sanitation is what I describe as um, the bargain basement level. And if you don't get it right, frankly, the rest of the building doesn't function. And by building, I mean the whole development edifice. So water and sanitation for me were kind of pretty basic. Um, um, and then at an operational level, uh, Tony Lake, the former head of uh, UNICEF, and uh, himself, a former official of the Clinton administration, uh, rang me up with an offer that I couldn't refuse, which is what I become global chair of sanitation and water for all, which was charged uh, with uh, the UN system with um, marshalling the support necessary to give effect to sustainable development goal number six. So it's kind of, you know, putting your, um, your money where your mouth is and going out and doing stuff as opposed to just bleating on about it. So we've heard, Kevin, as you describe, you've really put your money where your mouth is and you've been an advocate for many things during your time as Prime Minister, including the Millennium Development Goals, which of course were succeeded by the Sustainable Development Goals. So we're six years down the track now into the Sustainable Development Goals, so getting close to halfway. Do you think that the SDGs are practical enough and how are you feeling in terms of the uh, ability as a global community to achieve them? Um, the evolution of MDGs into SDGs is, uh, as you know, a, um, a fascinating but important process. Those of us who have some historical memory back to the Mesolithic period understand what happened when the MDGs were first framed on the eve of the Millennium Summit under Kofi Annan in the year 2000. Essentially, the then head of um, the uh, UN Development Program, I think Mark uh, Malik Brown, uh, went home one night and on the back of an envelope came up with the idea of the MDGs. <clears throat> um, and uh, I commended him on it because it created the momentum necessary uh, to then uh, create the, the institutional disciplines, which uh, eventually shaped the um, international ratification of the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, the other um, factor probably for... Um, Australian audience to be mindful of is that when the, the next Secretary General of the UN, uh, Kofi Annan, um, uh, uh, came up with the idea of moving us towards uh, sustainable development goals, he appointed me as a panel, I think I was foreign minister at the time, member of a panel called the um, uh, Global um, Panel on Sustainability to produce the um, uh, report on global sustainability frameworks uh, and sustainable development frameworks for what was called then um, the uh, upcoming uh, Rio Plus 20 conference um, in 2012. Um, and so um, uh, being Australian and becoming frustrated with multilateral exercises, I just took the pen um, and at one stage of the process, I wrote a draft report, which is largely what you see produced as a result of that panel, with, with everyone coming on board with it at the end, uh, being grumpy about the Australians taking the pen, but no one else would take the pen. And I was rather, I was rather keen to have an outcome rather than just an eternal multilateral process. 
Then to our collective surprise, our recommendation for sustainable development goals was adopted at Rio. Um, and uh, we are where we are with the uh, adoption of that at the, um, uh, at the uh, uh, summit of um, 2015 um, and the adoption of uh, Agenda 2030. And so the historical evolution of that, I've had a little bit to do with in one form or another, both in Australia's case as being a development minister when we used to have a development program and we used to have an aid agency in those halcyon days, um, but also trying to lend our own intellectual muscle to making this happen multilaterally. What's the key missing element seven years into the um, SDGs? <clears throat> uh, it's been my mantra within uh, sustainable development goal number six uh, as well. It's just called finance, finance, finance. And unless you are in the creative business of mobilizing finance, from multiple sources, uh, from governments, from the development banks, uh, as well as from um, uh, the private sector and all of its manifestations, uh, then the SDGs will remain normative rather than operational. So um, how do I feel? Um, all being very good UN types, they're great, they're great at the normative world. Um, they're less good at the what I describe as the operational world of mobilizing finance to get there. I think given the change in the US administration, uh, what I would really like to see in the area of what is doable is a vast new recapitalization of the World Bank and the uh, regional development banks to frankly become the engine room for making the SDGs happen. Um, because the bank has the infrastructure to make this work. It's got multilateral legitimacy. But if its balance sheet could be enhanced um, uh, in order to do the job, we might actually um, uh, start cooking with gas. So, Kevin, you talked earlier about um, SDG 6 being central to the whole building working, um, and I've heard you argue that SDG 6 is a precondition for achieving all of the other SDGs. Can you explain why this SDG is so central to achieving all of the others? Yeah, a lot of people uh, in the, let's call it, who work in the um, uh, development sector um, will understand as a matter of religious faith what WASH is all about, uh, water, sanitation, hygiene. And the reason it's put together in the single acronym is not just because it's an acronym um, with a vowel. Um, it's uh, because all three are deeply interrelated to people's um, physical health. You don't have um, clean water or access to it. People die or they get sick. You don't have um, proper sanitation. Uh, they get really sick and they really die in even larger numbers. And look what happens with most natural disasters when sanitation systems collapse. And from the perspective of, um, of um, uh, women and girls in particular, hygiene um, uh, and, um, and menstrual hygiene is just so critical. Um, the tragic stories I can confronted with in my period as chair of sanitation waterfall for young girls in Africa, elsewhere in the world, uh, without access to basic uh, menstrual hygiene services, the impact on their lives, the impact on their education, the impact on, uh, frankly, achieving the rest of the goals concerning gender equality is just uh, appalling. So WASH, while it is um, singularly uh, what I describe as um, uh, 
from a um, Hollywood point of view, the least sexy of the um, of the um, uh, sustainable development goals for me, therefore, is the most important. So when Tony Walt, attorney, um, the uh, previous um, head of um, of uh, of um, uh, UNICEF rang me up and said, would you take on this job? My response was, so how many people have you asked and turned down, turned it down already? Because it's not looking after global education, it's not looking after, you know, uh, global uh, health, it's not looking after, uh, you know, the uh, global gender equality and all those sort of things, uh, which, uh, which are kind of much more um, attractive. Twitchy said, you're only the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> So I said, okay, that appeals to my kind of Queensland rural upbringing somehow. So, uh, and by the way, we never had sanitation uh, as a kid growing up on a farm. So I, I, um, I remember what it was like, and it's not a terribly happy experience. Um, I'm really glad that you said yes, um, Kevin, and it is incredible as we're reflecting on your leadership on this. And I also want to underline and make sure that all of the listeners just heard your raising of the human stories and particularly raising menstrual hygiene. I think that signifies how important it is that we do talk about these issues that, yes, they aren't the Hollywood most sexy topics, but they are incredibly impactful. So you've talked really powerfully there about the importance of WASH, water sanitation and hygiene. We also know that we need to break the silo of also thinking about integrated water resource management so that the, the water gets to communities uh, for their multiple needs. And of course, in Australia, we've got particular skills in sustainable water resource management. Do you think Australia is being ambitious enough in terms of our capacity to influence the, the global development agenda in inter integrated water resource management? Uh, no, I mean, this country, um, because of historical water scarcity, um, but frankly, the great innovations over time by not just the CSIRO, but also some of our state departments of um, primary industries, agricultural and mm. water resources. There's a huge amount of accumulated um, wisdom in this country, which in comparative terms, we are unconscious of relative to um, the information and wisdom necessary now in the world uh, with, uh, with water scarcity. Um, and for me, it makes my heart bleed when I see um, the meat acts that's been taken to the development program generally and the Australian budget and what has happened to AusAid in particular. Um, when this is, for me, a no-brainer about a box of expertise we can happily take to the rest of the world. Mm. And not just happily, but effectively. Uh, if I look at sub-Saharan Africa, for example, <clears throat> and the creeping encroachment of uh, desertification, if I look at um, uh, the uh, water management problems in other parts of the world, there is a huge amount that uh, we can be done, mm. that we can be, that can be done, which we can do. And by the way, you touched on before, uh, just now on what I'd said about menstrual hygiene. I remember addressing the ministerial conference of uh, water and sanitation ministers in Addis Ababa, mm. uh, where as minister, as foreign minister, I've, I've reopened our embassy, by the way, uh, for reasons I could never understand. Someone had closed our embassy in Addis Ababa, the heart of the African Union, the heart of everything you do in Africa. And how could you be a credible global player and not have a mission in Addis Ababa? Anyway. Leave all that to one side. I'm there in the building of the African Union, uh, 
chairing uh, with a gavel this meeting on the water and sanitation ministers, not just from across Africa, uh, but right from across the world. And so um, um, uh, I'm sitting there with the president of the African Union. I said, now I'd like to talk to you all today about menstrual hygiene. I could see all these, yeah, yeah. I could see all these blokes in the audience because they're about 80% blokes. Um, <laughs> just shifting uncomfortably in their chairs. <laughs> but I did it deliberately and repeatedly, and my, my whole objective was to normalise the discussion about um, not just wash, um, but the hygiene part of wash and the menstrual hygiene part of hygiene, given its huge impact on the continent of Africa, uh, on the ability of young girls to get to school, for God's sake. So, um, so yeah, so, so I've now made a point of, rolling menstrual hygiene into all my presentations and discussions on uh, on uh, water and sanitation. Because unless you just make it a normal part of the conversation, everyone goes, ah, I can't talk about that. Absolutely. There's no shame in periods. Just a shame. There's shame in the fact that, you know, a third of our schools around the world don't have water and sanitation. That's a great story. You know, so um, that it was the one of the f funniest days of my period as a, uh, as a, as a chair of uh, Sanitation and Water for All. I'm still on the board of Sanitation and Water for All, by the way, but I, uh, after five years um, uh, of uh, doing a job and uh, working intensely on producing a finance minister's handbook uh, for uh, the WASH sector, how you raise money to do these programs locally, regionally and globally. Um, I uh, pass that um, mantle on to someone else, but I remain actively engaged in the sector. Kevin, you mentioned just before uh, your criticism of how the Australian Development Program has been run and um, reductions in budgets. Uh, what would you suggest for the future of the Australian Development Program and what do you think have been the implications of what has happened to it over recent years? Look, um, there is... A reason why we're able to achieve, at least for a season, a level of bipartisan consensus on the uh, growth in the Australian aid program in the period of um, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And that was because not only did you have uh, folks like me and others who believed in it as a matter of um, public policy, as a matter also of development policy and as a matter of foreign policy. Um, but you also had, at those, in those days, a pretty good Australian social movement. And you had people who were mobilised. Um, uh, I remember an outfit called uh, Oak Tree, for example, uh, used to mobilise young people. And they used to come to me for advice. In fact, uh, Hugh Evans, who then headed it, uh, now heads Global Citizen in New York. So we trained him well. Um, uh, given uh, their reach to the global development community. They do that whole um, uh, development concept uh, in Central Park in New York each year with, um, you know, the, um, you know, the uh, huge public awareness campaign about the challenges of global poverty. But I go back to those, um, those days. Um, I said to them their mission statement as a community organisation, as a social organisation, um, uh, should be to terrorise every single member of parliament uh, in their local constituency areas. Um, I think they took you to heart. 
Oh, yeah. And I said, I don't care whether they're Labour or Liberal or National. I said, you need to um, become positive pains in the ass for every member of the House of Representatives. Um, and you need to do that on the basis of growing your own local uh, development group in support of uh, eliminating global poverty or in support of giving effect to the Millennium Development Goals or giving effect to the Sustainable Development Goals as it would be today. But rather than um, believing that, um, you know, the endpoint is served by appearing on a discrete uh, program on SBS, um, and uh, let's call it the preaching to the choir on these questions, your job is to go out there and terrorise the living bejesus out of every member of parliament and to cause them to conclude that people care about this at local community level right across Australia. Rather than just saying, oh, wouldn't it be nice if the Labor Party in its annual conference adopted a policy of um, 0 0.5, 0 0.6 or 0 0.7 or 1 in terms of um, GNI uh, proportionality to... Um, uh, to uh, the development budget. So when I look to the future, therefore, and given the, um, the impact of Conan the Barbarian, that is the current government, uh, on the aid budget, starting from 2013 through to the present, um, the way to rebuild this is not just, shall I say, the normative discussion with political elites on the centre-left, it is to take to the highways and byways of each individual community around um, uh, the country, from your most remote National Party seats in Western Queensland. Go out there, talking to Bob Catter yesterday, get out there in Charterstown, give Bob a hard time on the development question, not just uh, in, you know, the, uh, in, the, uh, in Fitzroy and Carlton and not just in Glebe and Ultimo, and certainly not just in uh, the inner suburbs of Brisbane. You do that, then suddenly, I know for a fact, having been a member of parliament for 15 years, is that if you've got this constant uh, tribe of screaming young people in your office, um, and they are very in your face about what you need to do, it's very hard just to push those folks to one side. Uh, you want the problem politically to be solved, even if you don't necessarily have virtue in your heart about the need to do this for its own intrinsic, what I describe as humanitarian and human purposes. And they know how to make themselves heard in a way that previous generations didn't. Well, exactly. I mean, um, I'm a huge fan of Greta, for example. I'm sure you know, Greta would accuse me of not having done enough when I was minister, uh, prime minister on climate change and the rest. And, and I uh, am utterly relaxed about that attack. Good honour. Um, I just want to see a whole nation of Gretas um, emerge out there. Absolutely. By the way, my own, my own granddaughter, who was uh, princely age of seven, set up her own climate change group at her local school uh, in, for the, among the year twos, and then insisted on addressing the entire school assembly. Um, and uh, when it was suggested to her that this should wait until next year when she was a big person in grade three, she said, no, time's running out for the planet. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, all power <laughs> to her. That is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and of so course, good. yeah, Oak Tree continues to thrive and do that amazing advocacy work. And it does give us all hope. Um, and it, one of the things you've highlighted, um, you know, this need for action, Kevin, and the practical importance of water and sanitation. We also know that it is a human right to, to water and sanitation. In terms of that practical agenda, do you think focusing on the human rights aspect is a distraction? 
Uh, no, I've always had a um, uh, integrated view of development. Mm. Um, half of it is normative, of which the human rights agenda is uh, a core component. If we did not have the normative standards of international law, we do not have the normative standards of international agreements, such as um, uh, Agenda 2030, then you no longer have a normative framework within which people need to operate. For example, if there was no um, uh, right to development, if there was no longer a right to water, um, then uh, it makes uh, the rest of the activity seem um, utterly subjective. Mm. So it does have the function of what I describe as establishing the international and global um, moral goalposts, um, which is where we need to go. Secondly, however, where I occasionally get frustrated with my human rights friends is unless you then go into the mechanical business of raising finance to give effect uh, to those normative standards, then you are, as I said in the apology in a different context, you are a, 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 a clanging cymbal and a sounding gong. Mm. Um, in other words, you have virtue in your heart, but no finance in your pocket um, or an ability to raise it in order to give effect. I mean, even with the feeding of the 5,000, despite what your theology would be, um, uh, some bunch of uh, folks had to bring along a bunch of fish and a bunch of loaves in order to make it work. So there was some, um, there was uh, some, as it, as it were, uh, controller of the cash <laughs> to make sure the operation was, was functioning. So those normative frameworks that you talk about, I, was, I think it's probably true to say they've been under unprecedented attack in recent years. Uh, do you think that has implications for advocates such as you in terms of uh, how you align your efforts in future? Um, for me personally, um, uh, you know, a lot of people in the development community, for example, and more generally in terms of, let's call it social justice, across the board, both at home and abroad, uh, quote, don't want to get into politics, unquote. And look, I understand that. Um, politics is very hard. Uh, as you can see, my, my rolling debate with the Murdoch media, um, they, um, they, uh, you get on the wrong side of some of these folks, they want to rip your carotid artery out uh, and then um, tie it around your neck and then hang you with it. Um, you know, these are not very nice people. Um, but guess what? Most of them are bullies and thugs um, and they just need to be taken on. And so what I'd encourage people to do in their own, um, including myself, which is partly why I'm doing what I'm doing, as much as I'd like to, as it were, retreat to a quieter life and do X, Y, and Z and A, B, C. I don't believe it's um, frankly ethically responsible to do so. I think the power of public advocacy and causing people to change their minds and their thinking and their way of viewing reality is really important. So therefore, whether it's me as a former prime minister, someone who's reasonably active um, uh, globally, but if you are um, a community voice in Wangaratta, uh, the change is that the challenge is the same. Your job is out there to be change agents for local opinion. Uh, get onto the Wangaratta radio station and say, um, well, why aren't we uh, supporting uh, that poor village in Sri Lanka hmm. when we could be? Why aren't we getting behind um, three programs to, you know, sink an effective and sustainable well? We can. 
why can't we own those projects with a level of community and civic pride in the in Wangaratta, the local Wangaratta Rotary Club or whatever? I'm, I'm not saying the Wangaratta Rotary Club's not doing good things at the moment. I'm sure they are. <clears throat> but it's taking the global, making it local, owning it and advocating and causing people to think this is frankly an essential part of being human. And frankly, it makes a lot of grumpy people feel a lot better about their lives too, because they cease to be inwardly focused and they become outwardly focused. Um, and outwardly focused people, in my experience, the last you know, 30, 40 years of running around Australian politics and public policy, they tend to be happier folks. Absolutely. Kevin, I've, I've actually watched you facilitate a couple of high-level meetings in the Sanitation and Water for All Global Partnership, and I've noticed how you particularly make efforts to draw in the finance ministers from developing countries to speak for their country's own water for development needs. And I understand you've also led the development of a handbook for finance ministers on how to make public investment in water successful. So what's what's the philosophy behind focusing on finance ministers? Because uh, they control the keys of the kingdom. And um, presidents and prime ministers, and I've got to know a few over the years, their job is to try and hold a political show together at the government. We shouldn't um, diminish the importance of that responsibility. Uh, running a coherent uh, government with um, uh, all arms of that government from um, uh, national security down to sanitation have to be properly functioning. Um, but frankly, the, um, uh, the public revenue necessary to give effect to the priorities of the government is where much of the action lies. Uh, you would have heard me say this probably, Mark, in some of these gatherings I've chaired around the world, whether it's in um, extended World Bank meetings in Washington or in Addis or elsewhere. Usually when finance ministers, or as we call them in this country, treasurers, see a water and sanitation minister walk in the door, they flee out the other door because they know that this is going to cost them money um, and, uh, and usually lots of it. So the purpose of producing a finance minister's handbook, which took us something like three years of work to do, by the way, um, three years of work to do, um, was, to, was to cause finance ministers to conclude two things. One, this is financially achievable through a better re, uh, use of existing financial, public financial resources in uh, war and sanitation services. Uh, two, there are other means of raising finance, um, either through um, the development banks or whatever. Or three, there are ways of raising finance locally through cooperatives and God knows whatever else, and uh, locally self-funding initiatives in order to make water and sanitation um, and uh, hygiene projects work on the ground. You can issue local bonds, you can do a whole bunch of different things. And the purpose of the Finance News Handbook is therefore to say, here is a go-to guide of um, the menu of 12 different options I've got to fund a sanitation project. And by the way, on top of that, here are 12 case studies of how it's worked uh, in countries around the world. Not so it's both, as it were, technical, but it's also illustrative of, uh, of how to go about doing this stuff. So I'm quite proud of the book. It will not remain static. Um, part of the last will and testament of myself departing this position at the end of last year as uh, or as of 1 January this year as uh, global chair of uh, Sanitation Water for All is there'll be an annual update, uh, an annual digital version. Um, the whole point is just to normalise this 
in the discourse between the spending minister and the revenue raising minister. And, and then I said one final thing to them all. I said, and guess what? If as finance minister, you want to be president and prime minister one day, and they basically all want to because uh, they're ambitious politicians. Um, I said, um, there are votes in this. <laughs> and, uh, and guess what? You can make this work for you politically. It's going back to what I described before about mobilising Oak Tree into, uh, into the electorate offices of MPs across the country and terrorising the hell out of them. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, you go to a community and you've delivered for the first time a uh, sustainable water service or a sustainable sanitation service. I said, you become the member for life in that, in that area because you've actually delivered something material uh, of real relevance to people's ability to live a decent life. What an incredible legacy. And I love that vision of the success story for it will be, you know, in a couple of years' time when the water and sanitation ministers walk in, the finance ministers walk towards them and embrace them, talking about their shared agenda of getting universal access of water and sanitation and hygiene in their country, um, Kevin. And as, as we do wrap up and, and reflect on this conversation around the water crisis and water for development, I wanted to ask you two questions. First, I wanted to ask, what worries you the most when you think about the water crisis and water for development and what gives you most hope? Um, what worries me most about the um... Uh, water crisis is this um, is still a fragile constituency for global action on climate. Um, and still a fragile constituency. I think it's improving. It's not just the election of uh, Biden uh, and the removal of that other Conan the Barbarian, Donald Trump. Um, it's not just the fact that you now have the Europeans and the Americans and frankly, all the G7 now signed on to carbon neutrality by 2050. <clears throat> and hopefully at the conference of the parties on the International Framework Convention on Climate Change when it gathers in Glasgow in November, are people radically adjusting their uh, near-term targets for the 2020s in order to make carbon neutrality possible. Um, and the fact that we've got the Chinese at least committed to carbon neutrality by 2060 as the largest emitters in the world. Um, it's still fragile. And I follow the debates fairly intimately in my work as president of the Asia Society. Uh, I have, as you'd expect, I have a climate change program, which I've developed within the institution. We work a lot with the Americans and the Chinese on climate sustainability projects uh, at the macro um, so that's what worries me most about, frankly, the downstream, pardon the pun, uh, consequences for water. Um, what gives me the most hope um, is, um, frankly, the impact of the normative agenda as we've developed in the period of the MDGs, the SDGs, climate, water, and sanitation. Uh, has been the parallel revolution which has occurred in terms of, let's call it CSR cubed, corporate social responsibility cubed, my term, CSR cubed, not CSR, just, I mean, real stuff as opposed to bullshit stuff, <clears throat> across the um, global corporate community. I sit, for example, on the Global 
sustainability board, one of the largest banks in the world, which is uh, Morgan Stanley, um, and in New York. And so they know that their clients, their customers, their stakeholders, um, people who raise funds with them, people who lend funds to them, are now being compelled because of the new normative realities we've established around development and around water and around sustainability and around climate. But they need to be, um, as institutions, investing more in uh, sustainability projects in order to retain credibility in the marketplace. And even some of them have dis discovered they can make a buck out of this, perish the thought. Um, and that um, and the making a buck out of it's not, not a bad thing. So what gives me most hope is the revolution which has actually occurred in large slabs of the corporate world, uh, more slowly occurring in Australia, but there are more corporate voices in Australia now speaking up, as opposed to the classical Neanderthals from Rio Tinto and the rest, uh, who would just um, haul themselves onto the stage and, um, and basically say, not our problem. Um, well, frankly, it is the corporate world's problem as well, because they are corporate citizens of a wider commonwealth uh, where uh, frankly, the sustainability of that which we do, uh, including on climate and water, uh, is fundamental. So I think it's the changes in the attitudes in corporate Australia, notwithstanding um, the um, what I describe as the generally denialist politics of the conservative parties in this country still. Um, as with um, Indigenous policy, they'll slowly be dragged kicking and screaming across the line. Um, as they were with the apology in 2008. You should have heard the screams that day. Um, but frankly, more broadly, uh, as uh, MLK and others have said, the arc of history bends slowly towards justice. Uh, we're part of bending the arc. Kevin Rudd, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your deep insights on water and sanitation issues in a global development context on this second episode of the Goodwill Hunters winter season on water for development. Look out for episode three, where Rosie and I will be talking to two leading practitioners heading vital water hygiene and sanitation programs in developing countries in Australia's own region. So please join us when we meet Navara Keen, Director of Programs at WaterAid Papua New Guinea, and Alison Baker, Manager of the Water for Women Fund. Thank you.